forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and lover of Melissa's homemade iced coffee with homemade oat milk and I'm drinking it right now. It's so good. Hey, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I agree, not bitter at all. Wow, Melissa is really bringing it with her homemade coffee business. Like, she makes milk out of anything. Yeah. And uh, did, you, uh, did you make this cold brew? How do you make cold brew? Yeah, so uh, I don't want to give all my trade secrets, no, but uh, I make first I make sure that the beans were roasted like within the last two weeks and then I grind them and, uh-huh. and you have to make sure that you're doing a course like a big one and then let it soak overnight. She gave me the coffee grinds, too, because um, they're good for exfoliating like uh, chop surgery scars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to take those home with me. That's yeah. great. I'm going to smell like coffee more than I already do. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like half of our fights from like 2014 to 2016 was just about how much you smell like coffee. I do. I smell like coffee. (laughs) And that's fine. That's I mean, and and I'm not just talking about my it's not like my breath as as solely. It's it's also like seems to be coming out of my pores. And I'm not entirely (laughs) sure why. You should use cocoa butter too, like on top of your skin. And then I think it'll give it a good aroma with the coffee and cocoa butter. Yeah. Melissa said it's a nice aroma. And I'm going to be staying with her for your wedding. So I'm going to smell real good. (laughs) Um, This is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. We have got one for the books today. Uh, yes, whatever book it is, put it right in there. <laughs> is that not the phrase? No, it is, it is, it is. <laughs> it is, yeah. We have an amazing guest that I'm a huge fan of and I've I've read her books and um, it's Julia Serrano who, if you if you know anything about transness, you know about Whipping Girl, which is uh, her big book about trans misogyny. And it's, I'm a big fan and I can't believe she came on this show. <laughs> <laughs> and later we're going to keep within the theme and talk about pride both within the world and then also Gabe's experience where they partied for three days straight last week. But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous, the U.S. Okay. Well, not international, but it is anonymous, which is spicy. So I will accept it. Yeah, it is still mysterious. Yeah. Hi, Allison, Gabe, and Melissa. Like many international question askers, I've been a longtime fan of JBU since the BuzzFeed days. Thank you for all the advice and wisdom you've given over the years, and especially thank you, Gabe, for sharing your gender dirty. We started tea at the same time, and it makes me excited to see how you're evolving on socials. Hey, thanks. TLDR, what is my responsibility as a roommate and friend to someone with OCD? Rot row. Here we go. I, 23, they, them, and my partner, 23, they, them, are roommates with my friend Liz from college. 22, she, her, fake name. Liz has OCD, which impacts her daily life, including her ability to live in a space. 
Without getting into specifics, some of the areas in which she struggles with are cooking and using sinks. Liz also has shared with us parts of her trauma history, which includes abandonment and anxious attachment. Mm -hmm. We entered our lease as two couples, my partner and I, and Liz and her fiancé. In the summer of 2022, Liz got broken up with and left by her fiancé and partner of many years, which impacted her greatly and put us into financial instability as we figured out how to cover his portion of the lease. What's that like? (laughs) (laughs) What's it like getting left by your fiancé? What's it like having financial problems after a breakup with a (laughs) fiancé? Neither of us know. Before Liz's ex left her, my partner and I decided that we did not want to continue living with them. This was mostly due to our difference in living styles, particularly around cleanliness and doing housework. Mm. Liz and her ex never cleaned and always left common spaces a mess for us to deal with. We had a conversation with Liz at the end of 2020 about pursuing different living situations at the end of our current lease, late August 2023, and she was okay with that. Okay. My partner and I started looking for new living options in May to begin August 1st, but due to the difficulties in finding and securing housing, we decided to jump on a house for rent that had a start date of July 1st. Mm. It is a perfect fit for us, and we are hoping to lease to own. We, of course, planned on paying rent on our current place until the end of the lease, so Liz would not be financially compromised. Sure. When we told Liz that we ended up taking a July 1st lease, she became very upset and sat us down to talk about all the ways in which we were hurting her. She did not like that we were looking for places without consulting her heavily and that we did not check in or ask her about our housing options and choices. Mm. This was confusing to us because even though she is our current roommate, we did not think we needed to loop her in on our future housing at the level she was requesting since it did not include her. Another complicating factor is that we have very opposite work schedules. We barely see Liz and it would have been difficult to coordinate time to meet and have a conversation about future apartment hunting. However, my partner and I acknowledged the lack of communication and how that hurt her. We could have taken steps to be more forthright with our plans and communicating them. Most shockingly to us, however, Liz shared that our decision to move early would mean she is displaced for two months due to her inability to live alone. Oh. Though we are aware that Liz has OCD, we did not realize that the challenges she has with certain tasks equated to her being unable to live alone, and she did not ever tell us that explicitly. Oh. My partner and I are neurodivergent, and I have noticed that in the history of our friendship with Liz, we have had miscommunications where Liz took something as implied, but my partner and I did not know that we did something to upset her because she never told us outright. I think there is a very big leap between not being able to use the stove and not being able to live alone, and I wish she made that clear when her main OCD support, her ex, left the living situation. Okay. Something that stuck with me during our conversation was when Liz said, even with no mental illness involved, I still wouldn't do that to a friend. Mm. It made me and my partner feel hurt because we never intended to cause this much stress or harm to our longtime friend. That also made me wonder, would another friend feel so strongly about how we are choosing to transition to a new living situation? Mm -hmm. It has also been hard to parse out our responsibility to Liz and her OCD. While considerations could have been made, ultimately we wanted to ensure our next housing situation was stable. As a trans couple with strained parental relationships, we don't have a home to fall back on if we couldn't find anything. Liz has a positive relationship with her family and spends many weekends there. At the same time, it's not our OCD. Where is the line of being a good friend, accommodating OCD, and looking out for your best interests? Ultimately, I'm sad at the damage I have caused to my friendship with Liz and do not know how to move forward while parsing out my own frustration with her parts of her reaction. Mm. Thank you for reading. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Okay, I'm sorry. Back up. She spends many weekends with her family. Yeah. So they live nearby 
and she has a good relationship with them. Yeah. She's not displaced. <laughs> Am I nuts? <laughs> She's not displaced. Whatever. Fine. Okay. Oh, my God. Yeah. So as someone with OCD. Yeah, please. You speak first, I guess. I, I think parents are different, right? I think that like a parent's responsibility to a child, even as that child becomes an adult, is more intense than anyone else's responsibility to another person. Sure. Because I think a parent has chosen to have this person. Yeah. Um, and there's accountability there. But I think when it comes to friends, like, and where you're not even life partners, you're just friends. Yeah. Like, ultimately, like, you have to do what makes sense for you. Like and I your don't partner. and your partner. I don't think there was any malicious intent here. I also don't think that you even had the full information. Like it's not like you knew that Liz couldn't live alone and then you secretly went out and got an early lease somewhere else so that she would be screwed. Right. Like she never relayed that information to you. And also you guys are all in your early 20s. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of thing where like, it's a difficult situation, even if you were 40, but like navigating things in your early 20s when emotions are high. Mm -hmm. And I also have to imagine that Liz is still reeling from the fact that her fiance left. Right. So I think what's probably happening is that she is compounding those two things. Yes. So if she was still with her fiance and you guys left a month early, like what would that reaction look like versus she's now feeling like she's been left by both her fiance and her two roommates? Yeah. I think there's this thing that I've been noticing and it's just be it's through watching the queer ultimatum and also just talking to people is that and and living my own life is that sometimes people have a feeling and they're going through something emotionally and they have like a feeling about it and they can't figure out whose fault it is or where it comes from. So it becomes the someone random's fault. Mm. Like even if the discomfort is something that they are experiencing alone, they are experiencing because of the circumstances of their own life or something they did or whatever it is. Like it's this thing of like, I'm not feeling good right now. So what can I attach this to and who can I blame this on? Rather than sitting with your actual feelings and emotions surrounding the the thing and healing. So like, yeah, you're right. Like, okay, this person has a mental illness that's, you know, not going well. And they also uh, had a fiance who left and they're clearly like going through something financially. None of that really has to do with you or your partner. But this person is full of feelings, full of negative feelings, and they have to go somewhere. And people have a hard time being like, I'm going to take care of this myself. I'm going to figure out how to self-soothe. I'm going to figure out how to heal. I'm going to whatever. And it's an easier time to just kind of look around and go, you, you're the problem. Mm. And then they they go after that person rather than or that situation rather than saying like I'm I'm feeling uncomfortable and and this is uh, this is inside of me. Does that make sense? Totally. And you know, it's also like sometimes we get mad at each other. Like that's a thing that I'm realizing yeah. too is like sometimes you can really love somebody but you two want different things mm -hmm. and it can be from very small things to very big things. Mm -hmm. And there is there there is no solution that won't involve one person being annoyed. Yeah. Or exactly. pissed off or like upset for yeah. however amount of time. Mm -hmm. You know, like even like 
just like navigating travel with a friend where one person wants to take a train and one person wants to take a car. Mm -hmm. And it's like, whoever gets their way, the other person's going to be kind of pissed off. Right, (laughs) right, right, right. And I think I'm getting to a place where I'm like, I'm accepting that that's an inevitability Mm -hmm. instead of something that we should be terrified of or avoiding at all costs. Right. Like there will be times where we piss each other off, like especially the people that we live with, the people that we're close to, like that we, you know, have any kind of proximity to because sometimes you're going to want different stuff. And so in this case, it's you guys wanted to take this house early and and Liz didn't want you to, Mm -hmm. you know, so like it's not that you're a horrible person or that it's a huge betrayal of Liz. It's like you both just wanted different things that were in conflict with each other. But people, I think in their early 20s or people who are not used to that sort of thing in a friendship are like, this is a huge deal. This is a betrayal. This is a friendship ending. When it's sort of like, you're right, like sometimes you're in friendship, you want different things and people are very uncomfortable with that. Very uncomfortable. They take it personally. Yeah. Where it's like, it has nothing to do with you. We we just want separate stuff. And, And I think in terms of the OCD of it all, like when a friend, when you feel like you are worried about a friend's mental health, I think the thing that you do, especially if they have a good relationship with their parents, is to go to the parents interesting and obviously this doesn't work if they don't have right, a good right, relationship right. but if, if your friend has a good relationship with their parents and you're worried about their their mental health going to the parents and saying like hey this is what's going on i'm really sorry we have to move a month earlier than we had planned or two months or whatever and liz is really concerned about it i i'm i feel bad that i've caused her any more anxiety but you know, are you guys able to maybe like step in and and give her some extra support, you know, during this tough time? Interesting. Would you be able to say to Liz, do you think you could talk to your parents about this? I'm so worried about parents. I get so scared about parents because I don't know. I'm I'm just thinking of like my own situations where I'm like, I, is it, is it possible? I mean, you're right, but is it possible to be like, Liz, why don't you talk to your parents about living situations or why don't you know is there a reason you don't want to stay with them or something like that or yeah or just being like well how can we support you during this time like it do you want to maybe you know spend some nights at our new place yeah. can your parents maybe come spend some time with you or you can spend more time mm-hmm. at home can we sort of like walk through a way for you to be able to to cook without using the stove? Like, could we get you like some- A a rice cooker? Yeah, or like we could get you some microwavable meals. Like, you know, like kind of sit down and instead of feeling like you have to completely change your decision, instead being like, how can I support you now that I've made that decision? Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it also just might, the friendship might just not work out. Look, I think sometimes you got to give things some time, you know, like- She's clearly going through a lot. Yeah. And when people are going through a lot, they're not always acting like their true selves or their best selves. And so I I think like allowing for forgiveness in the future, allowing for maybe there to be tension right now, but knowing maybe you'll find your way back to each other. But I think offering what support you can is all you can do. But you can't like completely rechange your what's best for you long term around around this person, especially if she has a great support system in her family. Yeah, exactly. I think that's also, but like thinking of friendship, right? It's like you and your partner are getting a house. She got left and is dealing with financial problems. So there's resentment. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, there's a lot going on she there. She should, I mean, and like, it's a sort of be like, oh, she should be happy for you. But it's like, she might not have the capacity. Exactly. To be happy can't for you be happy right for you right now. Yeah. It exactly. sounds like she's going through a rough time. And yeah. look, like, we all go through rough times. And I'm, I was never my best self during them. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so hopefully that was helpful. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's just between us, P-O-D at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Julia Serrano. Stay tuned. Turtles All the Way Down is the acclaimed number one bestseller by John Green, author of The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns. Turtles All the Way Down is now streaming on Max. NPR named the novel a, quote, sometimes heartbreaking, always illuminating glimpse into how it feels to live with mental illness. Aza Holmes never intended to pursue the disappearance of fugitive billionaire Russell Pickett, but there's a $100,000 reward at stake and her best and most fearless friend Daisy is eager to investigate. So together, they navigate the short distance and broad divides that separate them from Pickett's son, Davis. Aza is trying. She's trying to be a good daughter, a good friend, a good student, and maybe even a good detective, while also living with the ever-tightening spiral of her own thoughts. Turtles All the Way Down is a brilliant novel about love, resilience, and the power of lifelong friendship. As someone with OCD, it is so wonderful to see OCD represented in an incredible book. I think it is so important that we talk about mental illness, both in our own lives and through narrative. Buy your copy of Turtles All the Way Down in stores today and catch the movie streaming on Max. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you all about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature and mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories, This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Right before I found out about this project, my mom made an offhand comment about wanting to write a memoir because she had such a wild childhood and there are all these things she's never really talked to us about. But asking someone to sit down and write a memoir is kind of daunting. So then I got her mylifeinabook.com and now she's getting prompts to answer on a weekly basis and it's a lot easier than just undertaking an entire memoir. I'm so excited to see what my mom does with mylifeinabook.com because she's someone who doesn't always feel comfortable just sharing about herself but having these prompts and knowing that I really want to hear her answers is going to inspire her to probably share more with me about her life and her upbringing than I've ever been shared with before so I'm so excited for that check out mylifeinabook.com and use code just between us at checkout for 10% off create an unforgettable gift for your mom this mother's day that's mylifeinabook.com use code just between us for 10% off today Just between us. 
Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week on the show, our guest is Julia Serrano, a longtime trans rights activist, writer, performer, musician, among other things. Her most famous book is Whipping Girl, a transsexual woman on sexism and the scapegoating of femininity, as well as a bunch of other books. Hello. Welcome to the show. I'm a big fan. (laughs) Gabe's freaking out. (laughs) (laughs) So what a timely interview, unfortunately. Um, But I wanted to talk about how, you know, you've done a bunch of writing on trans misogyny and, you know, it's kind of a, a horrible moment. And so I wanted to ask, like, what are the different dog whistles that you're seeing now in the last few years against trans people versus like, you know, when you've written before in the past or when Whipping Girl first came out, for example? Yeah, when I was first working on Whipping Girl, I felt like one of the biggest uh, barriers we had to overcome was just people being unaware of trans people. Um, And that's something through, you know, activism and community work and people in real life starting to know trans people. I feel like by the mid 2000s, we kind of had you know, not conquered it, but uh, we had taken care of that hurdle. But around the mid 2000s is when a lot of different groups began organizing and coordinated what is essentially a, an anti-trans movement. Um, a lot of times it takes a form of a moral panic mm-hmm. where people, you know, we're less than one percent of the population. And yet some people act as if we're like the biggest threat to civilization. Mm-hmm. And I, I think because it's coordinated, I feel like anything, even if it's not even related to trans people, find a way to turn it against us or to make it about trans people. So there are just so many, and and sometimes they're not even dog whistles these days. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there are three main kind of avenues that they take often these days. And so I think one is the 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 biological sex mm-hmm. myths about trans people which is just, I'm a biologist and it's just a lot of bad biology. Right, you're literally a biologist. I know, yeah. (laughs) Um, And uh, I think the second one, and this has always been around a little bit in the background, is the the transgender predator Mm -hmm. um, stereotype. And so, you know, that has existed in like movies and and things in the past. Um, It's always existed with regards to, you know, the bathroom bills and... But that has really um, intensified lately, especially with regards to the so-called grooming charge or trans people are sexualizing children. And then that relates to the the third main angle, which is I feel like with regards to gender affirming care um, for trans youth, which is a very complex topic. It's very nuanced and everything, but it gets uh, turned into, you know, rushing children into you know, hormones and surgeries and people out there at like literally think young children are having surgeries, which is obviously not true. Um, and I feel like the last two kind of tie together. I've written about how, you know, there's this idea of social contagion that transgender identities are suddenly contagious now mm-hmm. and kids are catching them like the common cold. And I think that idea is absolutely tied together with the idea of grooming children. And they both involve this idea that trans people are a contaminating force that corrupts innocent and pure cisgender people. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of an unconscious mindset that drives a lot of moral panics that 
you can see has existed with regards like it racist attitudes where of like the idea that oh well people of color or jewish people are going to you know corrupt our children or like attack corrupt us. our society yeah so i think that that right now is the most uh intense one with regards to the moral panic i think there will probably always be a little bit at least in my lifetime there will always be a little bit of background people having concerns about trans people um, or people being confused about trans people. But it's this moral panic right now that makes people think that, like, you know, we have to eliminate transgender people from society in order to save it. Save the children. Save our good society. Yeah. And the the saving the children or concerns about the women and children um, come up with a lot of moral panics against marginalized groups. And it's in full force with this anti-trans moral panic right now. Can you talk a bit about the biological sex aspect of it as a biologist and what sort of is is being used incorrectly? Sure, yeah. Um, almost everything they say is incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like when I give talks about this, I often point out that so there's this really simplistic idea of sex and in their minds, it's a very essentialist idea of sex. And they feel that there are just these innate essential differences between men and women. And therefore, trans people either cannot possibly exist or that trans women are men and trans you know, men are women in their minds. And sex is actually multifaceted. You know, there's lots of different sex characteristics that people can have and they don't always align in people and also a lot of sex characteristics they're not necessarily binary there are um in between states and like and some aspects of it are malleable so if a human being <laughs> any human being has a lot of estrogen in their system they will have certain sex characteristics and testosterone creates sex characteristics and you know, they might say biological man as much as they want, but having been on estrogen for 20 years and I'm different now. And if they were to meet me in real life, they would probably just assume that I was, you know, an innate, essential, essential woman. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's that all aspect. And I think there's also a lot of confusion. I think in general, when people think about genes or chromosomes, I think. A lot of people think that they act like little light switches, like on and off light switches. So like, oh, Y chromosome means, you know, male is on and no Y chromosome is female is on. Right. And and actually, that's not how things work. There are like 25,000 different genes in humans. And these genes make proteins and these proteins interact in all these complex ways. And so you get complex traits which create bell curves mm -hmm. um, rather than binary situations. And, and that's true for almost virtually all human traits. And that includes sex-related traits. Right. So I think part of it is a lot of people don't understand uh, about complex traits. Um, I don't know if they teach that in biology. They should these days because that's how the field understands things. Can we like take a step back and even just define what trans misogyny is for people who aren't familiar with that term? Sure. So that was a concept that I kind of fleshed out through um, my first book, Weapon Girl. And a couple of different ways that I explained it in the book or have explained it since. So we all like talk about transphobia. Okay. And so just the idea that if you transgress gender norms, people will have negative reactions towards that. And that's transphobia. But I think 
in a lot of people's minds, it's not just that we're trans, it's it's the direction of our transitions that that create different problems for people of, of different trajectories. With regards to people on the trans female and trans feminine spectrum, um, the fact that our gender transgressions are towards the female and towards the feminine in a society where there has been very intense sexism against women, that a lot of the demonization and consternation about trans people tends to be focused on trans women. And you can see that. And one way to think about it is trans misogyny creates this like increased attention and scrutiny of trans women, which also the flip side of that is trans male and trans masculine invisibility. I think also the fact that like maleness and masculinity are seen as natural, right? Um, in a in our male centric centric world, and femaleness and femininity are both seen as very sexual and also as artificial, right? Mm-hmm. So like you know, men groom, which sounds very natural, whereas women get all dolled up, right? And so I think th- these ideas that trans is seen as artificial and femininity is seen as artificial, and so um, so some of the focus is I think that in their minds we're more obviously trans because of that. Like, cause we seem like we're performing a gender more. Yeah. It's hatred of women. Yeah. Because people think that women and feminine people are performing their genders. Um, so it's that, and sexualization is a big one. There's this assumption that like, and it comes up in all these different ways where either like sexual predators in women's restrooms, or we're seen as being like, you know, our transgender identities are seen as like, you know, sexual perversions or fetishes, mm. or we're seen as, you know, we transition in order to trick or trap, you know, straight men into sleeping with us. It comes up over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I make the case in Whipping Girl that that's because, you know, we live in a world where like people used to say, oh, women are only good for one thing, sex. And in that world, it's like people presume that like, we must be transitioning for sexual sexual reasons, and that's related to women being seen as sexual beings in this male-centric society. I mean, you make a great point in the book, too, and, and onwards, uh, about how it puts undue pressure on cis women as well to perform femininity or to devalue femininity because the trans misogyny aspect of it has misogyny in it. And so, for example, you see... One of my exes was at the time a cis woman and was kicked out of a bathroom for looking too masculine uh, because they thought that they were a a guy. And so it puts this undue pressure like if you do get all dolled up, quote unquote, as a trans woman, you're uh, making a mockery versus if you don't get all dolled up, we are not actually a woman. Yeah. And that puts that then on cis women, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, People have been pointing out. uh how, you know, there's this uh, Matt Walsh documentary, What is a Woman, right? Or, like, people will frame, like, transgender issues about, like, you know, like, the woman question. And it's like, why is all the focus on that? Like, why aren't we having the question, like, what is a man? Right. <laughs> and we're not having that because man is the default setting mm. in in our world. And so, like, obviously men deal with gender norms uh, trans male and trans masculine people are dealing with those gender norms and also, you know, gender norms related to being trans and, and, and 
transgressing or challenging gender binaries. But uh, the the women are, and femininity are seen as not the default. They're seen mm-hmm. as the other. They're seen as the um, and they're they're seen as that there's a performative aspect really? that 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 they're held to, which you know men are not held to in the same way. And yeah, that informs trans misogyny, but it also informs a lot of cis women's experiences. And especially, you know, there's a, a reason why with Whipping Girl, it's it's about trans people and trans women's experiences of sexism, but it's also about the scapegoating of femininity because I feel like the two are really closely intertwined. Yeah, and you talk about cis men being effeminate and how that also is, you know, sex sexism when it comes to that. I also think as a trans guy, I've been thinking a lot about the social contagion aspect for we're losing our daughters, right? Which is also sexism because <laughs> I now as a trans guy, I'm not performing femininity. I'm, I'm not performing, you know, in the way I'm not acting as a woman in the way I'm supposed to in society. And like, you know, the Abigail Schreier book that came out that was like the transgender craze seducing our daughters. And it's like this thing where we're like protecting women, we're protecting women, and that hits trans guys too. It's like we have to protect our daughters, and it all comes back to trans misogyny at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. It's just like sexism all the way down. <laughs> and, right. and it is it is notable that like, you know, in Abigail Schreier's book, which is like really like the transgender craze seducing our daughters, what is the transgender that's like characterized as trans women, tra- trans activists, TRAs. Mm-hmm. Trans rights activists. Yeah, which is supposed to be like men's rights activists. So we're like, you know, perverted men who like have the these horrible sexual, like sexualizing sexual tendencies right. and who are victims, pure and innocent girls, right? right. And it's like, a, in the, it's another trans male, trans masculine erasure because it's always protect our girls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just, it's a... Those sorts of attitudes are new. They they've been invented. I I never heard any of those like those sorts of attitudes. It it was always like trans people are trans women and like trans men were invisibilized. Mm-hmm. And this whole like worrying about our girls is just this kind of new invention. But it's like it's not a new invention. It's just taking sexism and just repackaging it. So now we can make. Make one set of trans people the evil activists who are doing this horrible thing to our society, and and the other trajectory of trans people are young, innocent girls who need protection. It's just taking just all these sexist ideas and repackaging them into like a new soundbite. And it's a replica of racism where it was like, we got to protect our girls from black men or it's a repackaging of like, we got to protect, like you said, society from Jews, whatever. Like, it's just like, the same rhetoric, just switching people in and out. Yeah. And it, so in my book, Sexed Up, and I've also written online essays if, if people don't want to get a book um, about this, but um, in Sexed Up, um, I talk about the way in which marginalized groups are often sexualized. And one right. way in which a sexualization happens is like through the sexual predator trope that mm-hmm. a lot of marginalized groups face. And yes, it's it was, you know, really active in like, uh, black men being lynched because right. they supposedly were sexualizing young white girls and women, exactly. right? Um, and a lot of uh, anti-Semitic sound bites are are like focused on like 
uh, Jewish men being sexual predators mm-hmm. that you had to protect your Christian uh, women and children from. So right. it comes up over and over again. And I'm not as familiar with that book. Is it protect our girls from transitioning into men or protect our yeah. girl? Okay. So it's, it's Abigail Schreier's book was like, you know, our daughters don't want to be women anymore. They don't want to, they believe that being a woman is bad and all these trans activists are putting ideas in their heads and now they're all becoming trans guys. Got it. Yeah, I'd love to like dive into like, like the logic of TERFs, right? Like, you know, like what is, because I think it's so easy for people who are maybe more rational and empathetic to be like, what the fuck are they talking about? But like, Inside the head of a turf, like, can you kind of like almost speak to like what their bizarre logic is, if they even have any? <laughs> yeah, um, I think so. My book, Sex Up, I talk about the predator prey mindset, which is a way that we're all socialized to view how sex and sexuality work. And according to this mindset, men are sexual initiators or aggressors and women are sexual objects that men pursue. So women don't have any sexualities. They're the sexual objects that men pursue. Um, and there are so many bad things that come out of this. Feminists have cri- cri- critiqued a lot of um, different aspects about, about you know, why, why this is so bad. And I think that a lot of uh, turf rhetoric, or sometimes they call themselves gender critical now, are built around this framework that men are sexual aggressors and inherently dangerous, and women are sexual objects um, who are pure and innocent but get corrupted by men. And a lot of people in our society believe that to certain extents. Um, it comes up in a lot of, you know, especially a lot of uh, religious fundamentalism and the religious right has a lot of these ideas. But I believe TERFs believe them too, although they, they take a slightly different uh, stand in that they think that you know, women should be protected and, and women are pure. And so women should create women only societies or, you know, women only spaces. That's why they're so concerned about that and why just the idea of like a, a trans woman in that space has this corrupting effect, even though most people, whether they know it or not, most women have have shared bathrooms with trans women and nothing comes of that. Um, But anyway, I think that because they both are really invested in this predator prey, men are inherently sexually dangerous and women are inherently sexually corruptible. That idea is partly what drives a lot of um, turf rhetoric, particularly the the all their concerns about, you know, protecting women and erasing women come from that. And they're also able to work with the religious right, even though. They they sort of believe different things. They believe in the same thing. They believe in the same, you know, sexually dangerous men and mm-hmm. sexually pure but corruptible women. It's just that from their perspective, they just want to make women-only spaces, whereas the religious right want to, like, you know, dominate and control women. So, yeah, I, I would say that that is what drives a lot of turf rhetoric. I think it's also interesting to me that they're like, oh, women are being erased. There's not there's not going to be any like lesbians left or lesbian bars or whatever. And like a lot of the trans women I know are lesbians. So I'm like, you're worried about there not being any more women or not being enough queer women or not being 
any like the lesbians are are dying out and like there are a bunch of lesbians being created every day and then they go yeah but not you <laughs> like it's so funny to me so and th- this is the thing this is true of a lot of lesbian separatism and and some aspects of of lesbian culture and again not all lesbians because i i'm i live in a queer world i'm a queer woman and uh i know a lot of queer women in my life, you know, queer right. cis women in my life, as well as trans women. You know, they're all fine with trans women, but right. there are some people who are still kind of in, in the old. Is it so like lesbian separatism and a lot of turf rhetoric? Basically, there is this term called cultural feminism. That's this old term for this style of um, thinking about women mm-hmm. and uh, and and what what feminism should look like and what lesbianism should look like. And again, it's built around this idea of purity. For those interested, I, I wrote this online essay, so you can, it's free online. I think it's called Penises, Privilege, and LGBTQ and Feminist Purity Politics. I believe mm-hmm. that's the title. It goes into this and it brings in some of these ideas of predator prey um, and other ideas I talk about in Sex Up, but talks about it in terms of kind of how queer communities and and particularly lesbian communities are organized. And they're really organized about this idea about purity. And so there, you know, a lot of, you know, women, some women will call themselves gold star lesbians, meaning that like, I've never slept with a man in my life. So I'm, I'm like pure. A lot of the concerns about trans women also relate to historical concerns about bisexual women. Mm-hmm. There's this idea that like bisexual women have already been corrupted by men. And so this leads to both the assumption that they must be really heterosexuals. Mm-hmm. And it also leads to the idea of like bisexual women are infiltrating lesbian spaces in much the same way that trans women are infiltrating women's spaces, too. So it's a lot of the same rhetoric. I know it's hard, especially now with being a trans guy and also like non-binary people where, you know, it's like, well, we had this uh, this summer camp thing that was for queer women. And then there started to be a lot of the or a few, you know, transitioning. And they were like, well, we don't want to tell you you can't come anymore. So then it becomes this sort of like free flowing type thing of like, well, the trans guys are allowed so you guys can come. But the the trans women, you not you're not supposed to not at this camp, but just like a general mindset. But you're not allowed. And like Mitch Fest kind of thing, which um, is like a famous festival that doesn't allow trans women. So it's like this, it's this like just obsession with genitalia, I think, is what it comes down to. I really can't figure it out. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that Mitch Fest also kind of had a lot of the same ideology and they were usually fine with trans male and trans masculine people being in this space. Right. As long as they didn't assert a male identity. And the idea is that, in in according to that mindset, they're innately female mm-hmm. in, in quotes. And uh so therefore they're they're not dangerous. And trans women right. are dangerous. And it doesn't matter how long you've been living. And I used to have these these uh conversations because I, I worked with Camp Trans um for a while, way back. And uh I would have these conversations of what about um, you know, there are trans girls who like, you know, were assigned male birth. But uh, they've lived most of their lives, their childhoods. You can't say they've been socialized male, right? right? And like, what about them? Would you be fine with them? And they're like, they were, they would balk at that. They would be like, uh, I don't think I'd be fine. 
<laughs> and it, yeah, it's just, again, it's really, they'll, they'll put a lot of different labels and make a lot of different arguments, but it's really this essential idea of maleness being dangerous and corrupting and women being inherently Passive little damsels. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of feminists would critique the damsel part, right. but they still kind of believe to some extent that, uh, of, of women as being, you know, pure and innocent, like a lot of TERFs, you know, if, if, you know, they'll harp on like people who, uh, commit sexual violence come in all genders. And so they will harp on any instance where like a trans woman has done anything potentially or in reality, sexually violent. And if you have conversations with them, and I have a paper that I often share, that's basically this systematic review of studies about women who commit acts of sexual violence. And there are a lot of them. There are probably population-wise, because trans people are less than 1% of the population, I'm, I'm almost positively sure that there are more cisgender women um, who've committed acts of sexual violence than than probably than trans women exist or than right. trans trans women who've committed acts of sexual violence. But and when you share that, they're like, oh, that's not real. Like they just can't believe. And, you know, it's like you're in lesbian communities, but you've never heard of like lesbians being in, you know, an abusive relationship, if not sexually abusive relationship. Like, you know, all people, all people are capable of committing harms and all people are vulnerable to being harmed in different degrees. Yeah. It's it's the concern of like being hyper visible rather than being wanting representation or wanting visibility. Now it's the problem of being hyper visible. So like I, for example, when there was the shooting in Nashville and it was like the they thought, oh, this is a trans guy or whatever it ended up being. That was like the big rhetoric. And like I the next day had to go into the DMV to like get my name change. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the worst fucking day for me to be doing this. And like how many like how many like school shooters are cis white guys or, or and they just like don't that doesn't get the sort of blow up think piece fucking craziness that this thing did, you know, like it, it felt as soon as it's like, you know, what you hear from. Uh, Muslim people where they're like something happens and they're like please don't let this please don't let it be Muslim please don't like that's how I feel now with like oh my god please don't let it be a trans person please don't let it be a trans person and like it's just because there's this hyper visibility now that like we worked for but now I'm like this might have been a mistake yeah um I and obviously I follow a lot of trans activists on social media and some of these activists uh, take close watches of, you know, uh, anti-trans activists and, and anti-trans accounts. And almost every time that there's a really big, you know, sadly here in the U.S., like there, there are shootings every day, sadly. Every time there's like a big one that gets a lot of news, people will find some people in anti-trans activist groups making claims that the shooter is trans, even before I we know that. anything. Yeah. Yep. And a lot of those don't catch on through, like, to the mainstream. Yeah. And occasionally that does. Um, people made a really big deal of uh, the Colorado shooting, where it seems like someone who has a history of being really, really homophobic, transphobic person. But they said 
after the incident that they were non-binary or something that seems to get to have out been, of the hate crime legislation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To get out of the hate crime legislation. But like people ran with that story. It's like and right. then like a couple days later, it got called up like people looked into this guy's background. It was just really clear. He was just like he was a hater. And right. uh, th there's absolutely no signs that he was trans in any way, in yeah. any way. But like, you know, since so many people are so quick to assume there's also another incident a couple years back of I think it was a cis woman. And I, I think it might have involved YouTube, um, the company. I, f I forget the, the, the details of it, but it was a cis woman. And then people started saying it was a trans woman and it wasn't, right. it was a cis woman, but like that became a big thing in, mm -hmm. you know, turf circles. Like people were promoting that idea. So it's part of a, one of the things about moral panics is everything is about the moral panic. Right. <laughs> so if you're, if the moral panic is about Satanism, then all of a sudden you can blame, you can be John McDonald, I think is his name, blaming, killing his whole family and blaming hippies or, you know, the, the, there's the man, the Manson murders were like one. And then that just spanned like everyone blaming hippies and then explain, expanding that to Satanists. And then every single thing that happens is, is Satanists doing it. And it's just like, and even that, even the, the, like tying that in with transgenderism now and being like, oh, they're Satanists or whatever, which is like the old, tale as old as time. Yeah. There's also a thing of, okay, so this is based in, you know, transgenderism is based in mental illness. And it's like, okay, and what is that mental illness? And it's like, well, it's gender dysphoria. Okay, so then how do you treat that? Well, you treat it with hormones and like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, if you just push a little or you keep going, it's sort of like, yeah, so what you're saying is you would like, <laughs> like other than conversion, like other than obviously like conversion therapy, terrible stuff like that, but like, if you go logically, like, what are the steps to to fix the quote unquote mental illness? You know what I mean? Like, I saw a clip where it was a guy talking to a right wing person and was saying, like, if you woke up tomorrow and you were in a woman's body, but you had your same brain, what would you do? And he was like, well, I would try to, you know, get back to my old body. And it's like, and how would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> do you know, like, it's just like, yeah. it's just like, how how are you not understanding this? Yeah, I I wrote recently about like uh, I think it's it's another online essay. It's gender affirming care is neither new nor experimental, and right. um, where I share like all these you know I have over a hundred references in it of of articles, studies, reviews um, about about showing that it's it's not new, it's very old, and it's effective. One of the points I make towards the beginning, and this was something I have a chapter about kind of the history of like gender related care and and research um, during the 20th century. And basically doctors back then tried every single thing they could other than letting trans people transition. Mm -hmm. They tried electroshock therapy. They tried aversion and behavioral therapies, which are like akin to conversion therapy, you know, like yeah. try to force the person to be the way that they supposedly should. They right. tried giving people hormones consistent with their assigned gender. So like trans women, giving them extra testosterone to make right. them more manly. Like they tried all of this stuff and none of it works. And they very reluctantly came to the conclusion, oh, the only thing that works 
is letting people transition and right. then they do way better, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, many are way happier. And even if people are still having issues or still, you know, dealing with stuff in their life, a lot of that being transphobia mm-hmm. um, and discrimination, but like at least they're better than they were before. And there's just a bajillion studies that show this. And, you know, a lot of these people today, they're just starting at square one. Like, well, haven't we thought about, you know, trying this conversion therapy out? That will work. It's like, like, no, we did. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break for commercials and we'll be right back with our guest. And we're back. I want to talk about um, gender affirming care for kids and what people are getting wrong and what the scare tactics are. Because like, you're right, like they're not getting it's not like, oh, a free-for-all where these, like, five-year-olds are getting surgery. Like, it's not, you know, like, can we talk a bit about the that sort of scare tactic? And just for anyone listening who's like, I support trans people, but I don't know about this. Yeah, sure, yeah. So, basically, this is the gender affirmative model that has slowly come together over the last 30 years, okay? You know, before that, the tendency was to do conversion therapy or try to you know, force trans youth to like identify with their assigned gender. And a lot of people who experienced that ended up being trans adults anyway. It didn't mm-hmm. work. So basically, this is the thing. The, the first I think is is affirming the child's gender identity. Nobody knows <laughs> nobody knows other people's gender identities other than what they tell you. Everyone knows their own gender the best. And mm-hmm. so if a child is gender non-conforming, be affirm be affirming of that, right? There's nothing wrong with being gender nonconforming. If children are consistent, insistent, and persistent about identifying as the gender other than the one they're assigned at birth, then you allow for the child to socially transition, which is completely reversible. This that just involves letting them pick a, a name for themselves, use pronouns, um, haircut, present themselves, whatever. haircuts. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so that is completely reversible. If the child changes their mind, which, you know, people have done longitudinal studies and occasionally there'll be like one or two kids out of a big cohort who change their mind. But a lot of those kids are still very insistent and persistent in mm-hmm. their gender. And so then when puberty comes and this is something, the thing that people don't get when they get worried about puberty blockers or hormones, which I'll describe in a second, when they get freaked out about that, the thing people need to realize is puberty is an irreversible procedure. <laughs> if you mm-hmm. let someone go through puberty, irreversible changes happen to their body, right? So the idea here is that when kids, kids who strongly identify as the gender other than the one they're assigned at birth, um, when they reach puberty, you delay for a couple years so that they can make a choice. And so basically, so what well, puberty blockers, they're called blockers, but it's, they're, they basically just pause puberty. And once you're no longer on them, your puberty starts. Mm-hmm. And so um, kids might be on puberty blockers for a couple of years in early adolescence until they reach an age that, you know, a lot of times the groups that first started doing it, they would start administering uh, gender affirming hormones at 16, which, mm-hmm. you know, is pretty close to being 18. Mm-hmm. And also the other thing that goes on here is children, if you're below 18, you obviously legally can't consent to anything. You mm-hmm. you can assent. But, you know, doctors and parents work together on all sorts of medical conditions. 
that children, you know, people don't worry about if you hear about a 12 year old who like, you know, has cancer and, you know, needs to have chemotherapy. Nobody goes, oh, my God, those are experimental chemicals being put into a young child. It's like the child and the parents and the doctor are working together <laughs> to, like, make the child healthy. Right. Even cis children get t- given testosterone or get puberty blockers for all sorts of various reasons. It's not just something that trans kids get. So yeah, anyway, yeah. just wanted to add that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Puberty blockers were basically first used for children who have precocious puberty. So they go into puberty before at ages earlier right. than they should. And so they were used for about 10 years they, that that work was done in the 1980s. And then in the 1990s, doctors who were doing trans-related care started using them for strongly identified trans adolescents. So, yeah. And so then and the age that hormones start, you know, a lot of times it's 16. Some people say it should be a little bit earlier than that because there are some concerns about bone density. The people who want to ban gender-affirming care, they don't want to ban puberty blockers. Like, they're fine for puberty blockers being used for kids with precocious puberty. They just don't want gender-affirming care to happen. Right. Yeah. So anyway, so that that is what it is. No surgeries, you know, happen until, like, genital surgeries don't happen until after the age of 18. Right. So there's no kids being rushed into stuff. It actually happens over a very long period of time. The kids are assessed the whole time. And, you know, there have been, a, you know, like I said, over 100 papers that I've referenced that either talk about this model and or our studies about it. So this is something it's been going on since the late 90s and people are acting like it's new. And and what we're already seeing right now in Florida and other states is these bans on gender affirming care are actually now also going after adults. So they just want to these people just want to ban gender affirming care. We should know that up front. That's what they're trying to do. And because gender affirming care for trans youth sounds new to people, to the average person, it's easier to convince them. And, and also, once again, we're back with like, you know, but what about the children protecting the children kind of ideology? Right. Um, so, yeah. I just have like one final question, which is like a little tricky to phrase. But do you think that always thought that gender and sexuality are different, right? Um, And, you know, your gender identity has nothing to do with your sexuality. But I almost get the sense that people are sexualizing trans kids in a way that like they see like almost like, do you know, like what I mean that they see that like, like kind of what we were talking about earlier, like if um, if a uh, assigned male at birth teen is trying to transition into a woman, then like it's it's to become a sexual predator, even if he's five or she's five, you know, like it, do you see any link between that adding to the the fear and the moral panic of it all? Yes, definitely. So again, in Sex Up, where I, I write a lot about how like all marginalized groups are seen as more sexual than the majority dominant counterpart group. Just and, and I give examples like all across the board. This is true. So in the case of trans kids, even though they are kids, people see them. Sometimes people will like make assumptions that they'll they'll view gender affirming or even gender supportive, like supporting kids in classrooms. They'll view that as sexualizing children. They'll they'll put sexual connotations on it and they will put on like young trans girls like that. They're going to be the sexual threat in a locker room. Right. 
And again, it's this idea of, you know, cisgender people aren't cisgender people are pure. Transgender people are contaminated, corrupting um, and often in a sexual way. Um, and this is very similar to parallels between there's a paper I cite in Sex Up that looked at parents' concerns in basically uh, mixed race, you know, school districts. Yeah. White parents' concerns about black children, and, and in this case, particularly um, black young girls, having a potentially corrupting influence on their pure, you know, white, oh child, white female children, right? And, and this paper, like, chronicles, and a lot of this is said through dog whistles, like, mm. you know, people don't outright say these things, but the idea is, oh, well, you know, like, you know, just <laughs> the marginalized group is sexually corrupting. The dominant majority group is is pure and needs to be protected. Right. And again, it just comes up over and over again. So, yeah, that definitely is true. And that's the groomers, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yep. <laughs> uh, well, this has been so informative. And, and I think even people who, you know, realize that this stuff is bad, I think you were able really to speak to why and how insidious it is. And I really appreciate sort of the clarity that you provided for such a complex topic. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Happy to do it. And now I have to make you play a very silly game. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So this game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabe are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have. And then um, you tell me what you would do in that situation. And I pick a winner based on whose answer I like more. Okay. <laughs> but also, I should tell you, you can sway me. You yeah. can, you know, I might at first say, I don't know. And then you give me a little convincing and I, I swap sides. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You find out that your partner of 13 years went to their friend's house party seven years ago, not understanding that it was a sex party. They felt embarrassed that they hadn't realized and didn't want to seem judgmental. So they engaged in some group play before saying they had a stomach ache and going home. Would you stay with this cheater? It happened seven years ago? Yeah. How did I find out? They got really drunk one night and finally confessed to you. That's so funny. <laughs> That's extremely funny that they couldn't figure out a way out of this other than just saying my stomach hurts. Yeah, they, they did some stuff for about 25 minutes and then got out of there. <laughs> Julia, thoughts? It's kind of hard to answer this being in a polyamorous relationship. <laughs> I know it happens for <laughs> well, me too. Happened. We have to use the rules of monogamy okay, for the okay. game. Yeah, 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 yeah. So as a general rule, I would say if it was something other than that, if I'm thinking of, of something else that like I should have been told but wasn't, but it was seven years ago, I can see somebody being upset about it. But I think that if you've had seven years, if it was seven years ago, yeah, that's something I would be open to forgiving. I guess my question is, like, why didn't they feel they could tell me? Why did they keep it a secret? Because even in Polly, at least how I, I, I have, I don't do don't ask, don't tell. So, like, you know, people, uh, I know about stuff. But also, like, was it safe? Like, let's say they didn't have safe sex and they didn't tell me. No, it was safe. They were just so embarrassed. Okay. Like, that's, that's what led them to stay. That's what led them not to tell you. Like, they couldn't believe that they didn't understand what was going on. Are they still friends with that friend? Yeah. And the friend believed that they had a stomachache? Yeah. And then didn't invite them ever again? 
Well, then later when they got invited again, they said, you know, it wasn't for me. Okay. (laughs) I forgive them. I think the stomach ache part is really funny. I think it's extremely funny to be like, ow, my belly. And then have to go home. I think that's really like, I would, I'm, that's sort of endearing. Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny because like when I was a kid, if I wanted to get out of school, I would always go with stomach ache, even though in real life, like if you get sick, it's more likely to be the cold or the flu mm-hmm. or something like that. You don't really in sometimes you get stomach bugs or you feel sick to your stomach, but it's a great excuse. Like right? people can't see the inside of your stomach. <laughs> yeah, perfect I've excuse. A, I've had a stomach ache this whole time and nobody knew. Oh, <laughs> you did announce it when you got here. I did here. announce it when you I did, got when here. You got here said, I'm having a bad tummy day. So <laughs> we all knew because you told us. Well, I thought maybe you forgot and I was covering. Nope. <laughs> okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Okay. Your child, 18, is going to the same college as their insufferable best friend. Gross. And they want to room together. Okay. You offer to fill out the paperwork and secretly request they have a random roommate so they can expand their horizons and make new friends. Their new roommate ends up being a Christian scientist who convinces your child that medication is a sin. Are you a terrible parent? That sounds like karma. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Why is the best friend insufferable? Just a total turf. (laughs) The best friend is a turf? Yeah. But I'm their parent? Yeah. How did this happen? Life's wild. <laughs> I hate my kid. <laughs> my kid sucks. <laughs> I'm not a terrible parent. They're a terrible kid. Well, your kid's not a turf, but their best friend is no, a turf. That's, and that's co-signing. So I'm going to have to say no to that. So you'd rather the Christian scientist stuff? I actually am never going to talk to my kid again. <laughs> I actually don't want to hang out with my kid at all. Julia, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's hard. You know, before that, I was going to say, yeah, you're you're a bad parent only because you're you're keeping the secret. Your child is 18. They should be able to make decisions for themselves. And if that decision is to be best friends with the turf, then I, I'm not going to be very happy about that. But like anyway, so but the, the turf thing just in my mind changes it because it's like at me as a trans person having a kid whose best friend was a turf. I just that's so hard to imagine working how can you hang out with the person who doesn't believe i should exist maybe that per that kid goes i'm a turf except for you well that's why you have to plan an elaborate strategy to get them apart i think that's a bad kid never before have we (laughs) never before has this turned into do you have a bad child but i'm gonna actually say this is my new game do you have a bad child I think that's the right answer. Does your kid suck? (laughs) (laughs) And that's sort of what I'm going with. I think I'll accept that answer. You win. Yeah, turn it around. Why is it my fault? (laughs) Okay, our final game. Would you forgive this liar? You are getting married and one of your best friends doesn't show up. They send you a long text message later that night explaining that they got in a horrible car accident. Oh, my God. And spent the day at the hospital, (gasps) but are going to be okay and are so sorry that they missed your big day. Oh, my God. Five years later, their partner lets it slip that they actually didn't get in a car accident. They fucked up while reading the invitation 
and went to the totally wrong location two hours away and were too ashamed to tell you the <gasps> truth. Would you forgive this liar? No. <laughs> I would be wondering why they didn't just tell me that they had a, a stomach ache. <laughs> That's a much better excuse. Yeah, I mean, it's it's bad to like, if somebody misses your wedding, that's like not like that's that's not such a horrible thing that like I would have any like animosity towards them. And especially if they went to the wrong place, I would feel really bad for them. <laughs> <laughs> but if they faked being in a car accident, I was really worried about how they were doing yeah. and everything. I would be that would really bother me. I agree with Julia. Yeah. I'll never believe them again. They'll be like, help. I'm stuck. I'm stuck in a tree. I need to, you to rescue me. I'll be like, I don't be, I don't even believe you. I think it would depend for me on how good of a friend they were. Because mm. if they're already like an okay friend, it's like, okay, goodbye. But if they're like a great friend and they clearly just like fucked up and panicked in a way that was maybe not the best, but like none of their other actions, like the, I get a lot from the friendship. Yeah. Then I think I would forgive. What are they a bridesmaid? Yeah, they were bridesmaids. <laughs> okay, <laughs> or then the party. In the but then I would, I would keep being like, I would keep being like, how are you? Are you okay from a car accident? You know what I mean? Yeah, you had to Do like, you need help, help with medical bills? Like, fucked up. You've never asked me if I need help with medical bills. You don't need help with medical bills. <laughs> this isn't such a nice thing to ask somebody. You never asked me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I have good insurance. <laughs> <laughs> you have better insurance than me. That's true. Yeah. Oh, my God. There's an aspect to this question that's a lot like the first one. The first one is it's your partner and the the thing that they lied about happened seven years ago. And this is if this is your best friend, someone who would be your bridesmate and it was five years ago, I would be very upset about it. The, mm -hmm. Them faking the car accident. But I don't know, particularly if they're a really close friend, that it would be like a friendship ending situation. Yeah. That's kind that's of I where feel. I fall. I would have hurt feelings. I would just be shocked. I think I would just be, I would also, because I try to like imagine like what would I do if I showed up to my best friend's wedding at the wrong location two hours away? Like there's like that, like you imagine still, how terrible you would But you feel. could still get there in time for the party. Right, but you, it, that's the problem is that it's you not put. not like seven hours away. It's not like the, the, the wedding was in like Miami and you went to New Orleans. Like you could still. I'm, I really wrote this one just so that you would carefully look at the invitation, Gabe, and. Get, I know get it's there in, on time. I, okay. <laughs> I know it's in Santa Barbara and Melissa's going to take me. Perfect. So <laughs> I know where, I know where things are. Yeah. I did mistakenly think that my friend Steph's wedding was in Miami until like a, a, like a, a couple weeks later, I looked at the invitation. Oh my gosh. But, and it was in New York, <laughs> but like, I also, it was good that it was in New York because I'm not currently going to the state of Florida. So that's true. I look at the invitation eventually. That's all I ask. Yeah. Thank you. Um. I think also if you're the bridesmaid, you know, this is why there's re rehearsal dinners, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, going to the rehearsal dinner, right? But I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not in the wedding party. So how important could I be? Well, we've had, we had falling outs. I know. I, if I had to pick right now, you would be. Oh, life's yeah. complicated. Anyway, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> Where can people find you and all of your amazing work? So you can find all of my amazing work at juliaserrano.com. On my writings page, I literally list like every online thing and all my books, links to all my books. You'll find it there. Hell yeah. And I'm at Julia Serrano, Serrano with one R, at most online platforms. So like I'm on Twitter a lot. 
even though a lot of us are fleeing it. Um, yeah. I, but I'm on a lot of other spaces. So if you just look me up there, you'll probably find me. Yeah, her Amazing. blog is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about pride. It's time for topics. X X X X X X X baby. 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 Sweet, short and sweet. Unlike Pride. Well, maybe sweet, but not short. You were partying a long time. Still yeah. partying. You're still partying. <laughs> I kind of haven't stopped. No. Uh, well, first of all, my voice is just dropping, dropping, dropping. But so I'm getting past the part where of testosterone where you sound monotone, but it's still a little bit there. <laughs> So this is a series of events. My birthday is June 1st. Mm -hmm. Then there was WeHo Pride, which was June 2nd to the 4th, which is a big like music festival. So it's outside. They have like uh, all these booths and stuff set up. But then they have like this big music festival place that I saw Adina Menzel. I saw Orville Peck. I saw Carly Rae Jepsen. <gasps> I How saw was she? She is good. I was a little further away for her. So that was I was like, I didn't get up close. And who else did I see? I was having a very good time. Grace Jones. Right? Grace Jones. Yeah. And um, Passion Pit. And then Jesse Ware, who I'm not, I don't really know who that is, but so I didn't really stay for her, but I was living at Adina Menzel. Absolutely living. <laughs> My like the type of gay man that I am came out in Adina Menzel's set like so clearly because it was divided like the crowd, like half the gays were like, okay, whatever. And the other half were like, work, bitch. Like, <laughs> fuck yeah. Like do, singing Let It Go with Abandon. She starts doing Defying Gravity. Everyone loses their minds. And then like, we were like, is she going to do Rent? Is she going to do Rent? And then she did a little Rent song from Rent. And just me and like in the group of people I was with, me and one other guy were like absolutely flailing around. Just being like, she's our queen. Do you want to tell your story about how you missed her? Oh, okay. So here's what happened. I'm from Florida. We don't have a lot of money. I graduate high school and my parents take us on a trip to New York to see an episode of The Daily Show tape, which at the time was my favorite show. And also to see Wicked with Adina Menzel in it because I'm closeted gay and in love with Adina Menzel. But um, but basically it was just like, oh, I sh I'm a huge fan. So we get tickets. So we go to The Daily Show. Awesome. So fun. Um, and then we go to see Wicked. And it's an understudy that night. And I cried the entire show, the whole show. And like, imagine my poor parents, like they like brought me, they paid, you know, they like did all this stuff. And like, and I could have just been like, it's okay, you guys, like you tried your best. Like, you know, I could have like been mature about it, but I fully 17 years old sobbing the entire show. Because it wasn't Adina. Because it wasn't Adina. Yeah. Aww. So I, I saw her perform. This was fully what? So I was, this was 17 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I like texted my mom a video of her performing and she literally wrote back, you finally got to see her <laughs> like 17 years ago. And I, I'm sure I scarred them. Like, I'm sure it was like so upsetting because, you know, like, I, and really I could have handled it better, I think. <laughs> Well, it was a big disappointment. Yeah, especially, you know, a lot writing. Like you were, you had built it up a lot in your head. It's your graduation present. Like yeah. you went all the way to New York to see. Yeah. And then it wasn't her. I know. But like, 
I mostly now in hindsight feel very bad for my parents <laughs> in that situation. But yeah, so anyway, so I got to see her and um and everyone got to see who in the group was like a Broadway bitch and who which I'm not even a Broadway gay. I just love her and I like went crazy about it. So that was fun. It was like a music festival aspect, obviously incredibly overpriced drinks. And then, you know, all this different stuff was happening like on the streets in WeHo. And it's a fashion show. So like every day you're in a different outfit. Like you pick your pride outfits, you're, like, <laughs> figuring out like one. I got like a mesh hoodie, which is so funny because it's the most impractical piece of clothing. It's mesh. And then the hood is mesh. It's hot, so, like, though. Like, you know, like it's meant to be hot. It's not meant to be like warm. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, it's like nips out. Mm hmm. But it is just funny, like the whole time I was joking, being like, if it rains, I have a hood. It's just mesh. There's no rhyme or reason to it. I got a hat when I was in New York that says uh, it's bright yellow and it says Nepo baby. So I was wearing that little shorts. Then like another day I had uh, I wore for Orville Peck day. I wore like a country Western shirt with a bolo tie that belonged to my dad. So like you're like planning your outfits for like every day. <laughs> And then it was super fun. I was drunk for like three days. I live in West Hollywood. So like our group of friends could just come and like sleep stuff off at my apartment or uh, come and get some food or order, order Taco Bell to my apartment or whatever they needed to do. And then it's just nice because you're with all your friends. You're, you're having fun. You're like outside. You're, you know, support. You're like it just feels like a big party where like I was like, I love being gay. I love gay stuff. I love... I love going to these booths and like, not to brag, but I like there was a booth for still bisexual and I like walked up and I was like, if no, if someone at this booth doesn't know who I am, I'm going to fucking lose it. But it was like, a, a, I actually knew the girl running it. It was just really, really affirming and lovely. I never, I've never been recognized in more. I'm so gay famous. Like I've never been recognized <laughs> in more of a place. So many people came up and they were like, we love the podcast. We love JBU. Oh, really? Yeah. They were like really excited to like be like, oh my God, the show, like which was really nice. I think it's our entire demographic. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the switching gears part of it, like the darker side is that like we were, all of us kind of had in the back of our minds, like what do we do if something goes down? Mm -hmm. Like very, and that like sucks. Like I've definitely had those thoughts at Pride before, but like never more than this year where we yeah. were just sort of like what, my parents want to go to Pride in um in Fort Lauderdale. I mean, my sister are sort of trying to be like, don't do it. Yeah. Because one, it's Florida. But they were like, well, we want to go support like some friend of my dad's from his men's AA group is a trans guy. And they're like, well, we want to go like go, you know, whatever. And I was like, I love that for you guys. But like I, we just me and my Cheyenne were like, I don't think you guys should go, which sucks because it's like you want to like go and show support. And we had like you know, the days before it, we were sort of all talking about like, what should we do? Should we go? Should we not? And then like, you know, it was this like, I don't know. So then, okay, this is really weird. So then I don't know that this has to do with anything about it. But yesterday I was out in West Hollywood with a friend of mine and we were walking back to my apartment, like by the bars and a car pulled up and like someone out of the passenger seat shot us with a water gun. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And then drove away and it was water. We were both like, is this fucking water? And it was water. But we were like, what? What? Yeah. Like, what was the like, just the reason? What was the reason? Was it just there being it was like gay people being funny? Was it like someone 
driving by the the WeHo bars to like shoot at people with a water gun. Like, I don't understand what the, that's never happened to me before. And I was like, what is going on? Like, it feels like shit is out of control, especially like around pride stuff. It feels like really bizarre. So that was strange. That happened yesterday. And it spooked me. It was scary because I was like, that could have been anything. Yeah. I think you feel safe or you feel good in certain places. And then like, you know, people are joking like, let's during this person's set, let's stand behind this tree. And I was like, oh, in case like someone, mm-hmm. whatever. And we were, I was like, don't stop saying that stuff. Like, stop it. But like, it was coming up so much more. Yeah. So I don't know. To switch back to the bright side, I made out with a lot of people. <laughs> Good for you. How many? Uh, Countless. <laughs> probably like three. Oh, nice. Okay. That's not but that much. No, not bad. Not bad. Which is like also kind of fun because, you know, I had all these expectations of myself before I transitioned and I just thought so many things would be out of reach for me or like wouldn't be accepted or that like I had this idea and I know cis guys aren't the best, but I have, I had this idea of them as being sort of like scary. And now I'm like, no, everything's fine. Like there, there's not, I mean, it's one of these things too, where I was talking with my friend about it yesterday, where it's like, like this expectation in certain queer circles of people being perfect so like this, this person, in order for you as a trans person to be friends with this cis person, they have to never say anything weird, never say anything wrong. Like if they do, it's like so bad. And like, for me, it's a lot of it has come down to like realizing that there's intention and also that everybody screws up. And like, mm-hmm. as long as you know that they see you a certain way, like it, they're not going to, ha- nobody has the perfect language. And if you just hang out in groups where people do have the perfect language, even that, like, there's no guarantee they're seeing you correctly and it's gonna, the language will change. I just had this prior thing where I was like, I only have to hang out with certain people. Whereas like, I was having a great time and I, and I love these, like, I love these guys. And like, not that they're screwing up all the time ever really, but like the fear of them screwing up is just like gone now, which is, I think better for more like integrating the community and not having situations where like one group is seen or like, you know, where we're like separate, we're like separating, you know, from being like, oh, well, this group, this, this cis gay guy who's just like never read a book is like suddenly going to know everything about like, and it it, like is suddenly going to know everything about trans stuff. And if he says, ask me a question, that's like not that great. It's sort of like, he doesn't hate me. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So like, that's been a really nice reframing. And, you know, a lot of messy sex stuff happened. And that's also fun. And then <laughs> messy and then you just, physically or messy in the just sort of both. Okay. And then and then you know what? And then and then you're like making out with people and then you just go pride. You know what <laughs> I mean? You're just like, wow, it certainly is pride. And now that's that's done. We hope pride is done. Then this weekend is L.A. pride. Oh, and then I'm going to Dyke Day, which is during the day. Saturday is so tomorrow. This is tomorrow. Dyke Day. Uh-huh. Then a bunch of us are going to see Janet Jackson unrelated to Pride. But it's like a but group still. of us. <laughs> yeah. But like a group of us queers are going to see Janet Jackson because we got the tickets like six months ago. And then it's Gemini party gay astrology right after that, which I get in for free because it's like a, a gay party where it's like based on your astrological sign, you get in for free. So I have Dyke Day. It's a full schedule. Dyke Day, Janet Jackson, Gemini Gay Astrology. Wow. That's a whole. And then. Make and, sure you eat. <laughs> I do. 
I actually, even when I'm not hungry, the whole um, time of being of being drunk for three days, the whole time I was like, even if you're not hungry, you better eat something right now because you in a few hours is going to be grateful that that happens. Yeah, definitely. So I and they have food trucks everywhere. So I was like on top of it. I was like making sure I was like, you better fill yourself up if you're going to have another 24 ounce Bud Light seltzer. (laughs) (laughs) Disgusting. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about how like on our couch show, one of the things that people liked the most was me saying I was going to a warehouse party and you being like, absolutely not. And then me being like, it's from it's from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. It's clown themed. And you were like, absolutely not. And sometimes I really enjoy when it's like, it's like the two of you have your lives that are a certain way. And then I have like a second life that happens like after you guys are asleep. Definitely. I'm still awake, though. You're awake. You just have <laughs> no interest. You have no interest in like seeing Orville Peck outside with like. I don't even know who that is. You don't know. I comes did, back I to didn't our... either. Really? <laughs> yeah. You guys don't know who Orville Peck I'm is? I'm so sorry. There are really people who are gay famous. Or we're just out of the loop. No, he's um a country. You've seen him. He's a country singer. He's got a very deep voice and he wears a mask. Don't think I've ever seen him. You've never heard of Orville Peck? Nope. Well, now that you've said it so many times, I'm like, I oh, mean, of I've course heard I've heard of him. You. But it was like from a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> what do we rate this episode? I rate it 15 out of 14. Uh, Just hookups. Sloppy, sloppy hookups. <laughs> I'll rate it. 30 out of 10. New game. Kids just bad. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll rate it 11 out of 7. You got to get the apartment when it's available. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you to Julia Serrano for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabe Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond-Montz. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, you can follow this podcast at Just Between Us Pod on TikTok and at JBU Podcast on Instagram. Also, I'm on Instagram now at Gabe S. Dunn. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Raskin. And on TikTok at, at Allison Raskin Baby. And I'm on TikTok as Dabby Gun. So branding's going really well over here. Yeah, good luck finding us. Forever. Forever.